If you are not in a neutral position in relationship to your spine, if you're not in a neutral position with your rib cage over your pelvis, you're not getting the adaptation you think you're getting from your band work. And actually, you're probably, again, taking yourself further away from what neutral is and taking yourself further away from what good arm care is, right? What is up, guys? Welcome back to the AC Performance Podcast. You just heard CJ Appenzeller speak on the importance of neutral body position during band work. CJ is the owner of Appenzeller Training Systems in South Jersey, where he trains baseball players of all ages. On today's show, CJ is going to explain how he trains his players throughout multiple seasons of baseball and some of the philosophies he has in his training. It's a really good show, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, CJ, how are we doing today? Oh, man, another day in paradise, Alex. I'm excited to be here. Uh, big Monday for us at the gym, big Monday, you know, great start to the week. So I'm all good. I'm excited. Hey, you know, up in the Northeast, another day of snow, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know what's going on with the weather. I think every time we think it's starting to melt, we get another blast. So we'll see. Supposed to get more at the end of this week. I hope not. Yeah, that's what I heard. But uh, so CJ, let's hop right into it. You know, can you give the listeners a little bit of a background, you know, who you are, you know, what you do right now and how you got into what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, CJ Appenzeller, obviously, like Alex had said, I'm a baseball performance coach. So what that means, essentially, because a lot of the terms kind of get thrown around, um, I help ball players increase their velocity, pack on functional muscle, move better and slash their 60 times. So I'm the speed, power, strength side of the continuum. And I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of talk about, you know, how I train and things like that with our guys. But I like to think of it as a three headed monster or a, or a three pronged um, approach right to baseball development you have you have your tactical side your your actual skill development you have your physicality side and then you have uh, somewhat of like a blend where you're blending those categories and I'm kind of the blend guy and I'm also the physicality guy so when we look at it like that you know through that lens I do the stuff that the skill coaches maybe aren't as aware of but can drive up the capacity of that skill development at a high level so that's what I do I own a gym in South Jersey. Um, we train predominantly baseball players. We do have general pop clients and, and some different things in, in different, uh, and some different athletes in different sports as well. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor and a high performance consultant for division one programs where I go in and essentially tackle um, really my, my biggest thing with my consulting is tackling this idea of a global load management system and trying to establish really good markers, really good communication and really good systems around global mo- load management for baseball players. Gotcha. That's, that's, that's a lot of great stuff going on. And Thanks. Um, so, you know, let's hop right into it. Um, you know, when, when a guy walks in day one, you know, just a high school baseball player, you know, what's that process like, you know, go through your assessments and then, you know, what kind of your plan for him uh, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. So day one with me, you're going to go through a, a battery of assessment and, you know, the assessment, we don't use any particular methodology or, or, or model, you know, we're not an FS, FMS gym or anything like that. Um, we do steal things from all, all, all kind of different assessments. Um, what you're guaranteed to go through with me, depending on your goals and things like that, is some top-tier SFMA screening. Um, so we're going to look at global movement as a subcategory, and then we're going to break those out further if we feel like we need to based on what we see in, in that global testing. Um, we're also going to do 
some level of uh, movement screening. And when I say movement screening, again, it's not necessarily like an FMS or, or it's this or that. Um, we're going to look at a lunge pattern. We're going to look at a squat pattern. And then after that, we're going to look at some table testing. And we're going to, with our table testing, we're going to look at uh, bilateral shoulder motion, both actively and passively. We're going to look at uh, resting posture, specifically around baseball players and overhead athletes. We're going to look at resting posture of the scapula. And then we're going to look at strategies that this athlete uses to get up overhead, you know, from an active perspective and what those scapula do in, in that pattern. Once we go through all that movement screening stuff, if we feel like it's going to be number one, beneficial for the athlete and number two, appropriate for that day, we're going to go through some performance screening. That could be very big. That could be very small, again, depending on the athlete's goals. If, if someone's coming to me to just simply inc increase his 60 or decrease, I should say, his 60, we're probably going to take him through some speed stuff that day. We're going to get a time, and that way we have a metric from which to base our work moving forward. Someone is looking to increase, increase his velocity, and that is his sole purpose. We may do some medicine ball testing, some force velocity profiling that day. Um, so most of the time, guys are looking to do all those things, right? Improve their velocity, um, slash their 60 times. So we're going to do a little bit of testing in different categories, from sprints to jumps to throws, and take a look at those things. Absolutely going to do body composition testing on day one as well, especially with high school baseball guys, because most of them, the vast majority that come through the door are simply underweight. So I want to show them those metrics. I want to give them an idea of where they need to go. And then we want to get them started with some nutrition coaching as we feel, again, fit. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, a couple of those KPIs there, you know, key performance indicators. Um, you know, can you kind of speak on the importance of having those, you know, built within your system and, you know, almost as like a checkpoint, you know, to see, you know, is the training working? know maybe we have to do you know regress or progress Can you just kind of speak to the importance of kpis yeah absolutely i think you know alex so often like guys go to other gyms or guys train on their own and you say hey how's the training going you know what is what is the metric by which you're tracking the training and a lot of guys and gals are just simply using like hey i feel better hey i look better and those are great and, and those are definitely worthwhile pursuits you know to look and feel better but i don't think they're as specific as ball players want or need them to be. So having KPIs built into our program does a few things. Number one, it holds the athlete accountable, right? If you're not showing up to train, if you're not doing the things we're asking you to do inside and outside of the gym with high effort and high intent, well, you're not going to get the result you want. That's number one. Number two, it holds the coach accountable. Hey, is my program actually working? You know, is this, is this athlete that's in front of me day in and day out, two times a week, three times a week, four times a week, five times a week, is he going through the training that I'm talking about that I'm prescribing for him and still not getting the results or it forces us to hold ourselves accountable. And then I think the last thing it does is it allows for guys like you said, to hit these landmarks, to hit these uh, kind of critical masses within their training and within their training process to always have a very specific goal to look forward to number one and number two, to keep them focused on. So I think that, you know, the KPIs are pretty important. I think you can get really specific. You can be more general. I think everything we do in the weight room is relatively general in terms of, you know, sports specificity. But uh, I think, you know, the closer we can get to making it feel like baseball and or the closer we can get to having the specificity match up or line up, the better off we're going to be, the more, for, the more transfer we could potentially see into sport. So, you know, just kind of stay on that sports specificity, you know, part, you know, kind of speak on, you know, obviously we're not in the, you know, the weight room, you know, with baseball bats and, you know, our gloves on, you know, with, you know, with bands and stuff, but kind of speak to, you know, what, you know, what are you training, you know, when you, when you're working with a baseball guy? 
Yeah, so I think this really goes back to, you know, what are the goals of strength and conditioning? What are the goals of speed training? And the number one goal is to do no harm, right? Like that has to be the, at the very out, onset of our training, the absolute goal is to do no harm. And then the second level goal, and people don't like that I say this, is to truly create a more robust organism to decrease the injury risk from sport. So even before we get to all the sexy kind of velocity-based training, med ball throws for velocity, sprint times, laser timers, all those things, we have to first create a robust enough organism to go out and compete in sport. And that takes longer for some and less long for others, depending on you know, their training age, their injury history, and a, a multitude of other factors. Um, but I think that's really where we start, right? What are the tissues that we know have a high incidence of injury? What are the tissues that we know are going to get used and abused throughout the course of a season? And then how do we create a more robust positioning around those tissues? Number one. Number two, from a movement capacity standpoint, we have to be aware of what movements our athletes are expected to go through on a daily, weekly basis as the game progresses. And then especially as the season progresses, you know, are they prepared to go through those movements? Do they have access to the range and the stability to stabilize the skills that they're already accessing in the cage, on the field, every single day? Once we've kind of checked those boxes, and by the way, we never stop checking those boxes. We're always coming back to that. We're always trying to create a more robust organism at some level. Once we've checked those boxes, then we get to look at, again, the movement analysis of the athlete and say, hey, how can we ramp up the performance based on the specific demands of that sport? You know, how do we ramp up uh, an athlete's rotational power? How do we ramp up an athlete's linear speed? How do we ramp up his acceleration, right? And that's when we really get to have some of the fun as, as being a strength performance coach or a performance coach. Um, that's like what we like and what we geek out about, you know, but I think it, it's tertiary at best, right? It's the third thing we need to focus on. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question or not, but you know, what we're looking to do in the weight room is, and this is something I always say to our athletes, right? We lift enough that we can jump. We jump enough that we can sprint and we sprint enough that we're robust for sport. And you could put it through the same kind of, uh, you know, system for throwing, right? We lift so that we're robust enough to throw medicine balls. We throw medicine balls and do arm care so that we're robust enough to long toss. We long toss enough so that we're robust enough to slow, to throw off a slope and or to throw guys out across the diamond or whatever the case may be. But I think when you look at it like that, really the vast majority of your tra training is trying to keep these guys moving, feeling better, A, and B, creating more robust tissues where we know there's a high incidence of injury. Yeah, so, you know, Kind of moving into, you know, how, how you do your programming, you know, say it's a typical, you know, off season day, you know, kind of take us through, you know, how do you kind of you know, plan out, you know, your day? Like, you know, what are you starting with? And then, you know, what do you end with? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, a typical day with us uh, is going to start with some self myofascial release. We're going to do some foam rolling. We use a whole host of tools. So, you know, one day we might focus on using an actual foam roller. One day we might use a uh, focus on using a lacrosse ball. One day we might focus on using a peanut. One day we might use a peanut and a lacrosse ball, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, we also have massage guns in our, in our building. So we use those quite a bit. Um, not nearly as often to start a, a training session as we do to end it though. So after we go through our self myofascial release, our self massage stuff, we're going to get into some static stretching. I know static stretching gets a bad rap, but we've just found that guys move better. And it's kind of like the foundation piece before we can get into good active range is really we have to have that static range, that ability to access range. So we do do some static work. After that, we get into our generalized mobility work. After that, depending on the day, now we're going to move into either movement prep 
or we're going to move into some excitatory stuff. And then we're into sprints, jump, or throw, or some combination of multiple. Then we're going to get into the main strength portion. The main strength portion, the way we break those down, big focus on unilateral training, unilateral lifting on a lower body day, uh, big focus on getting in some level of vertical push, some level of vertical pull, some level of horizontal push, some level of horizontal pull in our upper body training. And then we're gonna break out arm care. And arm care is a whole nother kind of category in and of itself, but we do a lot on that front. We normally pair our arm care with some level of power training and use it as active rest so that we can kind of weave it within the, oh, hey bud. Sorry, that's my dog. So we can weave it um, within the actual training and not have to take time away and or just kind of sit around and wait when we're, when we're resting in between sets of power work. So that's how it's gonna work. Self-myofascial release, some static work, some mobility work, speed power, then our act active strength stuff. After that, we're gonna do some recovery, some return to baseline, some cool down, you know, however you wanna call that. That's when we're gonna use massage guns. We might do some more static stretching as per the individual. You know, oh, this is extremely tight. Let's work on that. We might do some extra tissue work if somebody has something that's kind of nagging or whatever the case may be, and we might address that then. Gotcha. So, you know, I know I asked you a pretty broad question because, you know, obviously depending on, you know, which, you know, which month you are in, you know, it will change. So let's kind of yep. go back a little bit. You know, a high school guy comes in in September and he's got to get ready for a season in March. Kind of take me through the phases that you'll progress him through um, yep. in terms of just the lifting. Absolutely. So what we're going to look to do in the very beginning, right, and we talked about building that more robust organism. The very first thing we're going to do is take him through some level of like an anatomical adaptation phase, which is fancy word for like, hey, let's get these tissues in a position that they're strong enough to be uh, used in a more explosive, more effective manner moving forward. So in that first phase, we're going to have a high focus on eccentric loading. We're going to have a high focus on movement capacity, right? Can I access range? And once I can, can I actively enter and exit through that range under load? After those two things are kind of addressed in that first stage, stage two is going to be more of a blend phase. We're going to move from maybe our eccentric type focus strength work to more isometric focus type strength work. And we're going to start to add in more power, right? Whereas in the beginning stages, we're not doing nearly as much power. We're sprinting all year round, but the volumes are much lower, especially in the anatomical adaptation phase. Now we're moving into this more power phase. We're going to add in more sprinting volume. A, B, we're going to start to add in some isometrics in terms of our strength work. And then the last piece to that is really taking them into a peak or a speed phase where we're doing a lot of sprinting, a lot of power work, a lot of output-based training where I'm looking at um, escalating the density of their rotational power work, but only as far as the outputs match what we're looking for in terms of 90% intensity outputs. And that's where we get into some of our med ball work with our radar gun that you know people see on Instagram and things like that. A lot of times I won't program sets and reps in a speed phase. I'll program... I might program, you know, two reps per set, and then our sets are anywhere from three to ten sets based on the output. And then we let the output dictate how much total volume the athlete does that day. As long as it's within our range, we have a ceiling, we have a basement, and then every single set we're checking to see what that output looks like to determine, hey, do we do another or not? Um, so that's more of like a speed or a peaking phase. So those are going to be like our three primary phases, an anatomical adaptation phase, a power phase, speed peak phase. Um, and you can break that down further if you really need to. The more advanced the athlete is, the further that probably needs to get broken down. And the more frequently you'll have to revisit certain qualities in order to keep that athlete ready to go. With our strength work throughout those three phases, 
again, anatomical adaptation, we're going to focus a lot on eccentrics. We're going to have some isometrics in there. In our power phases, we're going to have isometrics. We're going to have concentric focus strength work. And then within our speed and peaking phase, depending on how advanced the athlete is, the less and less, you know, true weight room work we do, right? You know, for a super advanced athlete, uh, maybe a professional, uh, like we have some guys right now that it's now the end of February. Minor leaguer is going to report April 1st. As of now, we're not really sure, but that's what the date that has been given to them is. So with those guys, we probably need to, we just revisited some qualities in terms of robustness and general strength. So now we need to start the peak. And that peak is going to look a lot different for a pro ball player who throws 100 miles an hour versus a high school kid going into his junior year, right? So that peak for a super high-level athlete may be mostly speed and power work with some extensive, and really we try to be as extensive as possible in that phase, with some extensive strength work around weak points or things that we see could potentially cause an issue later on down the road. So just for anyone who might not you know, know the difference between intensive, extensive, can you kind of just go into that real quick? Absolutely, yeah. So the way I think of it is intensive is work that's neurologically draining or neurologically um, consuming, right? So it's going to take a big toll on us from a uh, total reserve standpoint, right? And we can liken this, you know, Charlie Francis does, uh, has talked about this and Chad Wesley Smith has talked about this a bunch, right? We can liken the nervous system to this bucket of water. Intensive work is going to be work that puts water in our bucket. And if, if at any point throughout the course of a training cycle or even a singular micro session, a single day, um, we put too much water in that bucket, we're going we're gonna to delay our progress by way of overtraining, by way of lack of recovery, by way of injury, hopefully not, right? So we need to be able to separate our intensive work, stuff that fills up the bucket, and our extensive work, which may still fill up the bucket, but not nearly as much. So when we talk about extensive work, we're talking about work that's relatively unloaded or relatively lightly loaded. And we're talking about intensity that is far less than 100%, right? We don't really go in terms of uh, loading strategies for extensive work ever over 70% of what an athlete can handle. And a lot of our extensive work is going to be done in kind of the weak points of athletes. So you, you may see us doing extensive work for a sprinter, say, you know, for a, a position player around his calf, around his ankle complex. And that works all body weight work, you know, body weight calf raises, right? Body weight heel lifts, body weight toe lifts, right? We call those tibialis raises. Like that work is relatively low nervous system cost, right? It's not extremely taxing. We're not going to be sore or beat up the next day, but it still, is a, it still allows us to get an adaptation from the training we're doing. Gotcha. And just, I wanted to go back to, you know, one of the points you made in terms of, you know, when you're programming you know, your, your, your med ball throws and you're using, you know, radar gun to, to kind of guide, you know, how many, you know, sets you're doing. I, I really like that. Cause I think, you know, so many times it's just, you know, you got five reps of, of, you know, three sets, but you know, maybe a guy's feeling a little, you know, feeling good that day. You know I mean? We can get a little bit more, you know, adaptation that day. Um, and kind of letting the numbers guide you in terms of, as you just mentioned that, you know, that central nervous system, you know, when you start seeing those numbers kind of go down, you know, are we doing too much, um, kind of being yep. able to regress. So, uh, I like that sentiment. So, um, I also, I assume, I assume you draw a little bit upon, you know, Cal Dietz, you know, triphasic work, you know, with the eccentric isometric. Yeah. Um, Cal's a, Cal's a genius. There's really no way around it. It's, it's not to say that I agree with everything Cal says or everything Cal does, but I definitely, uh, you know, borrow and I'm, and I'm a big borrower in general, right? Like 
all of us are. Oh, right? Of course. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to find those guys that are doing this at a very high level and creating adaptations we like. We're going to steal and kind of borrow their methodologies. And then we're going to pl- uh, pl- program those in, plug those into our systems and see how they best fit and what the adaptation we get from our athlete is, right? And that's, that's how coaching kind of works. Um, some of the trick is knowing who to steal from, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, so yeah, I've definitely borrowed a lot of ideas from Cal, especially with our, uh, adaptation phases, like with those first, those first phases when guys first step into the building. Yeah. So, you know, when you, when you first opened up, you, you know, you, you talked about the, the, the action of a muscle, but there's also a function of a muscle. Can you kind of describe the difference between, you know, what the function of a muscle is and the action of a muscle? Yeah, absolutely. So when I talk about action of a muscle, I'm talking about taking a muscle from essentially origin to insertion, right? Like moving through a full range of motion. When I talk about function, I'm talking about how it functions within the, within the interplay of all the other surrounding systems within the sport or task specific to the athlete. So if we're just talking, you know, general population, right? What is function in general popula- population? Well, function is essentially breathing and walking, right? Gait and, resp- and respiration. That's general, general pop function. But within a baseball population, function is much different. So a perfect example is like, uh, you know, say that we'll use the adductor, right? Adductor magnus, right? We know the adductor adducts the hip, right? Moves the, moves the femur essentially towards the midline. But the, that's the action of the adductor right? The function of the adductor as it relates to a baseball population is to provide secondary stability down the midline in rotational movement, right? So that's, again, when we, tr- we could train the adductor extensively and just through its action, which is valid and, and, and could be used, especially in earlier stages, right? We could just do adduction work, which we do a ton of. But on the flip side of that, we have to train the adductor to be able to stabilize the midline as it, as it would in the actual function of the athlete. Serratus is another really good one people get confused on all the time, right? Serratus is a protractor of the scapula, but it also works in upward rotation of the scapula. So the function of the serratus in a baseball population is to allow for upward rotation of the scapula and then to stabilize and allow for the delivery of the actual arm overhead. So if we can't train that that active function, then we're missing the boat. If we simply have guys doing protraction exercises, we could, and it may be valid at some level, but if we can't train the function of the scapula, then we're going to miss the, or the function of the serratus, then we're going to miss the boat. Yeah. So I think staying right along with, you know, kind of the, making sure that, you know, we're covering, you know, everything in terms of our training, you know, when it comes to sprinting, you know, and I know, you know, you're a big, you know, you know, decrease 60 time, you know, big sprint guy, big speed guy. You know, can you speak on the importance of when you're when, when guys are sprinting when it's a speed phase that we're doing that with a proper intensity, right? Absolutely. Got- yeah, absolutely. So you know, for us again, we talk about the med balls and uh, the med ball output training, right? Was essentially what I call it, right? We're output driven training. Uh, a lot of the sprint work can be done the same way. Now, there's some psychology behind the sprint work that could wreak havoc on an athlete if you're constantly timing, constantly timing sprints. I think it's valid and we time a lot. We have multiple timing systems at our facility. I have laser timers. I have Bluetooth timers. The one we use the most is the free lap Bluetooth timer. It's awesome. It's super convenient. Um, and we do that quite a bit, time different flies. And I'm a big, I'm like a 10-yard fly guy. is kind of like my thing. And that's kind of my gold standard and really where I think baseball should move to. It, that's maybe another topic for another <laughs> day. But, um, yeah, so 
when we're looking at the intensity of sprint work, there's a lot of different ways that we can look at it and a lot of different ways we can communicate to the athlete what the intensity needs to be. Now, in the initial stages, athletes will have no idea how to control that sprint intensity, especially a young high school kid who's maybe never even been taught how to sprint appropriately. He definitely doesn't have a good metric or a good speedometer of his intensity in terms of sprinting. So I think developing that speedometer is really, really important. And one of the ways we do that is, is we play what's called speed gate golf. Are you familiar with this concept? No, I'm not. Okay, cool. So speed gate golf is essentially, you know, and we do it with tens, right? 10 yard fly. So we take, take an athlete's best 10 yard fly we do the math and calculate what it would look like at different intensities. So, you know, whatever that, whatever that may be, say 85 and up intensity. And then we play the game where, Hey, you know, this hole is 85% intensity. The guy closest to the pin closest to his 85% yeah. intensity number wins. And that teaches these athletes at a very, very, very quickly, by the way, like this is awesome. And if you get athletes to compete, like, forget it. Like that's, that's the gold, that's the goal. Right. Um, and, it, and it's absolutely golden for these guys to, in terms of learning their speed on or learning their intensity. Um, so you get them to do that. And now you've educated them on the intensity of the sprint work. You're not going to get a ton of speed transfer working below 90% intensity, maybe 85. We can make an argument for, um, but on the flip side of that, every sprint you do at hundred percent is very intense and it's a lot of load quote unquote on the body, right? Every foot strike is is you know some of the fastest motion it's really the fastest things as as speed coaches as sprint coaches as performance coaches that we can do within the weight room so we have to be aware of that as well we do not want low intensity sprinting but we have to be aware of what the ceiling looks like for high volume and high intense sprinting as well so i think i don't know if i answered that but to the, the two kind of keys for me are teach these athletes how to sprint appropriately and then teach them how to use their speedometer quote unquote and then on the flip side of that is be aware of what that ceiling looks like in terms of volume of sprinting. And I'm much more on the low end of that volume ceiling. Uh, I am very, very careful with how much volume we put in, in in terms of sprinting for our athletes. Now, we do it quite frequently, but I am much more on the side of microdosing, especially high school athletes with competing demands, than I am of the overload uh, in terms of sprint volume. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you know, as I'm sure you see, you know, a lot of times, you know, as you work with, you know, high school guys, college guys, you know, and they come from different programs. I'm sure you see, you know, even other programs, you know, kind of speak on, you know, the importance that your speed work doesn't become conditioning work. Yeah. And that's the bit, and that's the big misstep right there. Right. So like I, like I just said, below 85% intensity, we're not going to get a speed benefit and really 85 is, is probably too low as well. Right. So 90% plus in terms of intensity is where we're going to get our speed benefit. But so often coaches, baseball coaches too, which is pretty crazy. Uh, coaches make the assumption that just running sprints repetitively makes an athlete faster. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Right. And if an athlete doesn't have full recovery between those outputs, he's never going to reach that 90 plus percent intensity and therefore never going to get a speed transfer. Conditioning work is completely separate. And really conditioning work is, is maybe the, the biggest fallacy within baseball strength and conditioning. This idea that we should run poles or do miles or even sprint repeats really are kind of missing the boat in terms of the energy system development needed to play baseball at a high level, right? Baseball is an alactic sport backed by an aerobic system. And really you can get an aerobic benefit early on in the off season with your mobility work. And then throughout the season with your mobility circuits, with your movement prep work, that's probably the only aerobic development you actually need to play at a high level. 
And then the other, the other side of that coin is the alactic capacity side. That's what I think we need to spend a lot more time on is educating coaches and players that you need to be able to repeat high effort with almost complete rest relatively frequently. And that's some of the stuff we do as well with our med ball peaking program, right? We create an opportunity to expand the output, the alactic capacity rotationally and otherwise within our athlete population. So I think that's important too. Um, do not confuse sprint work with conditioning. Conditioning is conditioning. And if we go lactic and conditioning, we're completely missing the boat. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, I, and I've, you know, the way I've used, you know, as you, just, as you just mentioned, you know, for me to build, you know, athletes aerobic bases, you know, through mobility circuits, through movement circuits where they don't even realize that they're, that they're doing it, but we're, we're getting a big bang for a buck where we're working on mobility, but also building that base, which again, you know, no, no one on here is saying that an aerobic base is, is a bad thing because obviously you know, it brings more oxygen to give to the muscles. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of, as you said, they missed the boat in terms of, you know, where they could get a lot of benefit is the actual speed development instead of the conditioning. Now you mentioned that your volume is, 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 you know, relatively on the low side for sprinting. You know, how do you combat, you know, an athlete that, that they, that they, they need to feel, you know, the fatigue to feel like they got, you know, work done, you know, how do you kind of, you know, walk them through that? Yeah. And that, and that's a big one really quick on the flip side, before we go into this question, what you were just saying about the conditioning idea, right. And this aerobic base, I think so often that this, these two questions tie together so well, because coaches want athletes to leave tired. Right. Yeah. And, and some athletes even want to leave tired or otherwise they feel like they didn't get a great workout. And that, is, to me, is one of the biggest fallacies in, this, in the fitness industry in general and definitely within baseball. And I think the way I combat it and the way I approach it is simply educating our athletes, right? And it starts with that education piece. I'm constantly talking to our athletes about why we're doing things, and I'm constantly explaining what it is that we're doing, especially to those guys that I've identified like it, like to know more, like to dig deeper, like to have an idea of what's going on from a physiological standpoint versus just tell me what to do. Now, you're always going to have athletes that just say, hey, tell me what to do. And the way you earn that trust is, again, through earning their trust, right? You engage with them. You analyze the things that they're saying. You recognize and, and create that relationship by genuinely caring about the individual. So I think two sides of the coin, right? How do I combat, combat that idea? A, I earn the trust of every single one of my athletes by meeting them where they are, engaging with them, analyzing every word that they say, and, and actively caring about their well-being, their development, and them as people. On the flip side of that, my athletes that I've identified that like to know more, that want to dig into the training, that want to understand it at a physiological level, I explain it to them in very simple terms which I'm getting progressively better at breaking this thing down super easy <laughs> and using like really good metaphors. And, and that's what we try to do. So I, I tell them all the time, you know, the best, the best runner, you know, for the Boston marathon is not going to throw 90. Like it's just not yeah. going to happen. Right. So what is the specific adaptation we're looking for? And do those people that you're training like have that adaptation? Yeah. So now I'm going to move into, you know, some, you know, some, some questions now that, you know, I just want to get your, you know, immediate response. First thing that comes to your, your head. All right. Okay. Yep. So the first one is what's your response to when someone says that weightlifting stunts your growth? Uh, wrong. Incorrect. Yep. So can you just kind of speak on, you know, now, now move into what, why, you know, cause that, that was, that was concern of a lot of parents and, you know, some, there are some parents and some players who still believe in that fact that, you know, weightlifting can, you know, can get you hurt or um, can stunt your growth. Just kind of speak on to why that is a fallacy. 
Yeah, absolutely. So number one, it's a fallacy because we don't have any research that supports that, right? So that's, that's like where I go with a lot of it is like, hey, the research doesn't really support it, number one. But uh, I think in terms of training, especially younger athletes, you know, prepubescent athletes, my focus has always been the same. And it's really the same as when we, when we get an 18-year-old kid that walks into the door, right? Whether you're 12, 11, or 17, if, you've walked, if you're walking into my door for the first time, and I was actually on Clubhouse talking about this maybe two days ago. I consider your training age zero. Even if you're like, oh, I lift weights at my school or oh, I go to Planet Fitness or I go, to, I go to retro with my buddies, your training age to me is zero, right? And when our training age is zero, I go back to those big constitutes of like, what are we trying to accomplish? We're trying to do no harm in training. We're trying to create a more robust organism to hopefully decrease injury risk out on the field. So the very first thing is developing movement competency. So a lot of our 11, 12, 13-year-old athletes that are training with us don't even use at any added load or any added resistance for the majority of their exercises, right? They're going to learn how to goblet squat appropriately with some load. That's going to be one we load. They're going to probably do push-ups, barbell pushing, or barbell push-ups, I should say. So bodyweight pushing. They're going to do recline rows. That's bodyweight rowing. They're going to start to do some eccentrics in terms of the chin-ups, in terms of vertical loading. Um, they're going to lunge probably mostly body weight, maybe a lighter kettlebell, lighter dumbbell goblet style. Again, they're going to learn how to goblet squat. That's going to be one we load up. And then they're going to learn how to resist unwanted motion in terms of our core training approach. And that's really about it. And that goes to the point where we have to load them. Like they've earned that right. And then we can move them in that direction. And even then we're not going to have younger athletes, especially prepubescent athletes grinding under weights. We want everything to seem as if they're playing with, you know, quote unquote, playing with the weight, obviously in perfect joint positions, but playing with the weight in terms of intensity. So we're not going to put uh, young athletes in a position to grind or to grit their teeth or to try to like max out on a deadlift. Some of that stuff on the internet, like really just, oof. <laughs> it, it kind of make it kind of gives me the chills and it's very cringe um but yeah so th there's no research that suggests that lifting weights at a prepubescent age stunts growth a but also b i'd say approaching it the right way and developing movement competency and, and coordination and then a base level of stability first is probably still the best strategy to get someone to the level where they should have to add external load gotcha so my next question you kind of touched on it a little bit um when people say the best way to, you know, train the core is through cr crunches and, and, uh, you know, just things, things of that nature, you know, touch on, touch on that. Yeah. That's, that's our function and action discussion again, right? Like the function, the true function of the core is to resist unwanted rotation and to transfer force. So I want to train it in its true function, especially as it relates to baseball, right? I want to be able to create force at the lower half and then generate that force to the upper half, either to the hands into the bat, into the ball, or into the hand, into the ball to release a pitch. So uh, I, when I, what I talk to my athletes about is the true function of the core, right? To be able to, to stabilize, resist unwanted motion, to put us in perfect skill development positions. And then on the flip side of that, it needs to be able to transfer force effectively so that we, everything we do in the lower half, all the force we work to generate in the lower half can be transferred effectively up the chain. So that's what, that's, you know, the true function of the core. On the flip side of that, the idea that like crunches, sit-ups, Russian twists are, are a good idea, that takes me back to this idea of do no harm, right? And we know that sit-ups over, over the long haul, maybe even more specifically Russian twists are definitely a no-no for me. You may, you may see sit-ups done by me, like as a person, not my athletes, mm -hmm. right? 
I, and I'm and I'm starting to get to the point where maybe I'm rethinking straight leg sit-ups as a core flexion, as a hip, sorry, as a hip flexion idea. Um, so I'm starting to rethink that a little bit. But in terms of crunches and Russian twists, I just think the risk reward is so outweighed on the risk side where, you know, putting the lumbar spine in a position to rotate is, is suboptimal at best. I think Shirley Saruman talks about like more than 13 degrees of rotation in the lumbar spine is particularly dangerous. And I'm going to take her word for it. I'm not going to put my athletes in a position where the risk of the exercise far outweighs the potential reward of, you know, having a six pack or, or something like that, or, or looking a certain way, especially because the six pack doesn't function, you know? Yeah, of course. And I, I think obviously, you know, you know, Russian twists, you know, obviously, you know, the, the goal is to engage the obliques, you know, but the issue is that, you know, athletes or, you know, people in general don't, don't engage the obliques. All they do is they, they turn from their lumbar spine and as, and as I'm sure as you know, you know, Michael Bull's, you know, joint by joint approach, you know, the lumbar spine should be, you know, stable, not mobile. So, you know, getting it out of that stability is, and as you said, you know, baseball, well, it's a rotational sport. You know, that's, that's where, that's where guys, you know, making, make their money at. So if you're, if you're upsetting that balance of stability, mobility, and, and getting your rotation from the lumbar spine, you know, instead of the, instead of the pelvis and the thoracic spine, then, you know, we're just going to run into a lot of issues. So, um, 100% agree. And like, when we look at that, again, another education point for your athletes is that this is stable. This is the column, right? This rotates. And a lot of guys you're going to see, especially one side in baseball are going to have thoracic rotation deficits that need to be addressed. But the, be the best way to address those is not by adding more motion at a joint that's supposed to be stable. So yeah, I'm, 100%. I'm, I'm on 100% on board with that. So how about when someone says that the only arm care I need to do is J-bands or band, banded work? Well, I think false. I think J-bands and bands in general uh, are some of the most butchered activities in, in all of sports training and across the board. I think athletes constantly do too much in terms of uh, frequency. I think they do too much, too many in terms of exercise selection. And I think their tempo is incredibly too fast and too sloppy um, to get any real adaptation from it. So everything we know about good arm care starts at the midline, right? Everything is proximal to distal. If I'm not in a perfect position in terms of a, a neutral position uh, with the relationship to my, pe my pelvis and my diaphragm, then just about everything else I do is probably exacerbating issues that are already occur versus providing any stimulus for a positive adaptation. So what I uh, tell my athletes to do or what I ask of them is to try to pick out three exercises that are worthwhile for them on the arm care side, on the J band side, on the band side, whatever the case may be. We use Marv bands. They're pretty cool. Um, so I try to tell them to pick out three and the, the cat, the subcategories are I try to tell them to pick out an external rotation drill, something for scapular, a movement drill, right. And then a tricep drill, which I think like triceps uh, extension makes athletes feel really good. It allows for a, a good, you know, quote unquote, warm up or activation before throwing. And then I try to tell them to do two sets of those exercises for 10 to 15 reps at a controlled tempo, monitoring their neutral position at their spine. If you are not in a neutral position in relationship to your spine, if you're not in a neutral position with your rib cage over your pelvis, you're not getting the adaptation you think you're getting from your band work. And actually you're probably, again, taking yourself further away from what neutral is and taking yourself further away from what good arm care is, right? And, that, and that's, what I, that's what I think with the bands. It's crazy. We do a ton 
we do do a lot of band work in, in the building and really we do a lot of band work because we don't have access to a ton of cables. Uh, if we had cables, those much be those do a much better job at accentuating the strength curve of an athlete, especially at the shoulder. Um, so we would do a lot more of those if we had access to them, but we don't. So we do do a lot of that. We also do a lot of, you know, quote unquote body weight work. And the way I break out arm care, I break it out into several subcategories, right? So we have external rotation as a subcategory. But once we have active external rotation that matches passive external rotation, now we have to get into a next subcategory, which is what I call dynamic cuff control. And our dynamic cuff control is going to be our bottoms up drills and our bottoms up series of things. And then our dynamic perturbation series of things in, in kind of two splits and two different branches of dynamic cuff control. On the scapular side of things, you know, we have serratus activation, serratus function. And then on the other side of that, we have low trap function. And those are my subcategories for scapular activ activation and activity. Now we're gonna have a lot of guys that present in different kind of scapular patterns. So we're gonna have to put our focus into different subcategories of arm care for each athlete. But that's not to say we won't have the athletes all do the same drill. Like a really good example is a straightest wall slide. Everyone in my building is gonna do a straightest wall slide, but I'm gonna coach it five to eight different ways, depending on how the athlete presents in a uh, neutral position or a resting position or a resting posture of his scapula and how he generates force, how he gets up over the head to throw. That's going to really dictate how I coach up the wall slide, how much wall slide we do, how much of a low trap activity we do. Uh, everybody's going to do external rotation and dynamic cuff stability, but then we're going to kind of pick and choose and, and choose our shots best we can based on the resting posture of an athlete and then how he presents with active motion. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think uh, uh, right along with that is, you know, is that arm care is more than just, you know, just the arm, you know what I mean? So it's, it's everything you do in terms of, you know, making full sure body. exactly full body and, and even, you know, the sleep and nutrition, all that stuff. So, you know, that's, 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 that's a good sentiment there. So got two more questions for you. Yeah. All right. So is power plane specific? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what the research says. It's not up to me. <laughs> so, so I wish so for someone who's so, make decisions like that. <laughs> so 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 if, so if someone doesn't you know understand what it means for you know power to be playing specific, kind of dive into that and what that means for a baseball athlete. Yeah. So when when we say power is playing specific, all we mean is that if you get better at generating power, right, force divided by time, right? If you get better at generating high level of forces quickly in a specific plane, a plane of motion being, you know, we'll call straight up, straight down, right? transverse, rotational, sagittal, frontal, um, these different planes of motion, whatever, whatever uh, plane you get better at generating force quickly in is what you'll carry over, right? So for a baseball athlete, we, we're looking to generate force in a rotational manner for the most part, right? We do have some linear, uh, some linear activity and some frontal plane activity that goes on in baseball as well. But if we want to build power specific to baseball, we're going to need to have a heavy focus on those frontal and rotational planes of motion especially in later stages and with more advanced athletes. Now, the more general an athlete is or the, the younger he is in terms of training age, the more general we can be and still get an adaptation that carries over onto the field because power is plane specific up until a certain point, right? You know, like something like a, a hide and jump in the frontal plane, right? This way, sideways, is great for a high-level athlete, but could also be detrimental or just too much too soon for a younger level athlete who can't produce force horizontally. So I think horizontal force production, you know, forward to back is kind of our ceiling for how high the frontal plane can go, but that power is still plane specific in what you train, you get. Yeah, of course. So 
last question here. Um, you know, I think we're starting to move away from this a little bit, but I, I feel like I still hear it you know, too many times is, you know, sh- should a baseball athlete lift in season, continue to train in season? Yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute must. And I actually have a three-part blog coming out on this, but uh, I think when we look at athletes training in season, there's, there's a multitude of reasons why they should, right? Number one, and I really like this idea of being able to, this is maybe the one that's talked about the least, so I'll mention it first. I really like this idea of being able to peak in terms of output near the end of the season, right? We all know we get to the end of the season. I don't know what high school is going to do this year in New Jersey with playoffs. If there are going to have playoffs, wherever the case may be, just assume we, we will. We want to be at our very best at the end of the season. And on the flip side of that, we know 80% of athletes won't train in through the season. So they'll actually be, in terms of force outputs, decreasing their ability to output force near the end of the season, right? Because when we look at how long these qualities stand, stay for, how long these qualities uh, stay around in the athlete who's not training, we see that there is a downslope in speed, in power production, the longer an athlete goes without training. So if we're training throughout the season, not only do we, do we set ourselves up for success end season, we're also creating that gap between us and our competition because we can peak at the end of the season. On top of that, we go back to this idea of building more robust organisms. And when we look at, you know, the, the strength speed continuum, we're doing a lot of absolute speed work in season. So probably going to get a lot out of doing some absolute strength work to try to create quote unquote balance and or robustness throughout the season. A, B, C, we're creating an opportunity to get in some good active recovery and to hold on to mobility changes and mobility gains, you know, movement gains that we've made throughout the offseason. As we know, baseball is a one-sided sport, right? Most guys are not switch hitters. Most guys are not switch throwers, although we do see those guys here and there, right? So we're going to start to lose certain motion as we go throughout the season. You know, just in an acute bout of throwing, uh, a pitcher may lose some hip rotation, may lose some shoulder internal rotation. Now we have the opportunity to address those mobility deficiencies in the training scenario. I think on top of all of that, you're also setting yourself up I know a lot of high school athletes can't maybe think this far in advance or can't uh, conceptualize this far in advance, but you're also setting yourself up for the next offseason. Imagine when we come into the next offseason being exactly where we left off, right, last year versus starting from a, a fresh canvas. We can now build on that, get to more advanced means, get to more progressive means, and continue to drive up our ability to produce force, to be uh, plane specific in terms of our power outputs, to continue to get faster, bigger, and stronger, where, from where we started or from where we ended last offseason versus from a brand new canvas. So I think all of those things are really good reasons why we should train in season. There's a lot of uh, nuance to how we do it. I think that's where, you know, tracking and readiness comes into play at a big, big level. Like if we're not tracking the readiness of our athletes, if we don't have some type of objective and subjective metric for tracking that in season, that's going to be probably an issue. And that's going to kind of, uh, decrease our ability to be effective coaches. But I think if we have those things in place, we can do a really good job helping guys hold on to their strength gains, helping guys peak for the uh, postseason or when the games count the most and help guys start next off season at a really, really high point. So we continue to build. Yeah, of course. Well, CJ, it was an absolute pleasure having you on, you know, you dropped some absolute knowledge today. So, you know, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, I'm happy hour everywhere. A P P Y hour. Um, happy hour on Instagram, happy hour on TikTok, happy hour on Clubhouse, and uh, on YouTube as well. CJ, have a good rest of your day, man. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely, Alex. Thank you.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to the AC Performance Podcast. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. That way you can get the episode as soon as it drops. If you're looking for more daily content, go follow my Instagram page at Performance. I hope to see you guys next week.